Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Kate Mulgrew, quite simply, is a wonderful, extraordinary woman. Let's just start with that. She's published two autobiographical books, which I devoured and loved. She's currently working on her first book of fiction, as well as beginning work on a new series. An enormously talented actress with a huge list of credits, Kate's thirst for knowledge and probing questions guide this episode. This is one you won't want to miss. Enjoy. Hello, Kate Mulgrew. Hello, Gates McFadden. How are you? Oh, I am great. great. I am great seeing your face and your beautiful. I love her hair, folks. Her hair is, it's it's a cooler color than mine. I'm digging That's it. That's what it's come to, Gates. <laughs> it used to be the body. It used to be the face. <laughs> now, now it's, it's the, hair. the hair. But that's all right. You've had such an amazing career and life. I read both of your books. Did you? I did. And How I, very thorough of you and very nice. I loved all the questions that kept coming up in the books. First of all, I'm so blown away that you actually wrote two books. Mm. I have tried to write, and I've been very unsuccessful at it. Those are two of the most brilliant titles. Mm. Did you come up with both those titles on your own? Because I, I mean, did. They I did. are fabulous. And the editors both times argued. And I said, no, I'm quite sure that Born With Teeth will will be a good title. Oh, it's very... Oh, stop. Really? Well, just because it sounds very harsh, but I was born with teeth, which I write well, about that's in that's it, book. exactly. And if you write it, then you know that, and it's good. And How to Forget is... Um, it's pretty awesome. It was a little inverted, but it, 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 it is exactly what happened. Well, as we age, we start to really feel the importance of our own stories, and we have to tell our stories. Um, sometimes my stories... I, I, I go, well, am I delusional on this, or is this the way it happened? And one of the first questions I wanted to ask you is, so when your siblings read this, do you feel that they all went, yeah, that's the story? That's a very interesting starter question, because I have many siblings, and uh, I'm one of eight children. And I don't know that they all read it. Uh, the only one with certainty was my younger sister, Jenny. Um, I had problems with uh, one of my siblings, um, who uh, thought that it was uh, erroneous. Um, and I said, well, but you see, that's my memory. And you would, of course, would have your own. So there was a conflict there, which was hurtful, and hurtful to me, because I love him. I love them all. Uh, but I had to, um, Anne Royfe, my mentor, said to me, if you're going to write, you've got you to be very aware of the one thing that's going to cost you, and that is going to be the honesty to write. Right. And if you're not going to do that, Kate, just skip it, because uh, that's that's simply the price one has to pay. And this is memoir. Right. So um, they all had differing opinions. 
They also had differing opinions about the quality of the writing, I'm sure, certainly about the veracity of the uh, memories, um, because this was about my father, uh, how to forget, and my mother, with whom I had an intense and very, very close relationship, an entangled relationship, one might say, and with my father, a more distant relationship. Um, but you know, for my brothers, who were very, very close to my father, it was an altogether different. Right. But I think what we what we have to discuss, which is the imperative here, is not the writing and how people react to the writing. Everybody's going to react differently. We're right. human. What we have to talk about is uh, why we write. And that's what people react to. Why wouldn't my siblings react to that? Very strongly. Of course they did, because I felt that I had to write these memoirs. And now I'm writing a third book, which is a novel. But it's about mortality and facing mortality. I, and I, this is the way I'm doing it. Well, I hear you. That's what I was trying to do myself. I was trying to do a one-woman show that had to do with just episodes in my life. It wasn't a full, you know, But what is that compulsion? I mean, I would ask that. I think you. it's about it's about learning who you are. Is and that what about, acting used and, to be for you? Yes, but it's complicated because I have only one sibling. Yeah. And he, he and I do have different memories. When there's only one sib, I don't want to do anything that would offend him. On the other hand, I mean, that's part of the journey, just to be truthful with my own story. Oh, of course it yeah. is. And I think in, when we're talking about, which we are now, uh, facing death, uh, this is a cruel thing. And in my family, we lost two sisters. So I think that my urgency to get this stuff out and down has a, as much to do with fear as it does with uh, a, a creative compulsion. I think it is to do with understanding why we're here, putting meaning to our life and preparing for death. It's, it's a journey. I Which is no easy feat. No, no. I mean, I'm finding it increasingly challenging because I'm losing people. Mm -hmm. but a lot of my friends are much older than I am. Mm. I'm losing people. I've already lost people. And I feel like there's a kind of a terrible, swift vulnerability eclipsing me now. And uh, I'm, uh, there's a, a kind of frantic urgency to get this out. Interesting. And that to me is, I'm trying to listen to it. And at the same time, I'm trying to be still. So, right, because that can be dangerous thinking you have to get it, it out when actually maybe you have to just feel the vulnerability. Be present to it. Yeah. And don't you think Strong. as actors we have a problem being present? I think we do. I think we're always in the future or always in the past. No, see, I, that's where I don't think we're alike in that place. Oh, I, I don't. I think, like, there was a chapter where you were talking, and I can't remember which of the two books, but it was like, you know, there's something about agents when you get that phone call, you can be making love, and you just want to get that phone call. That's not me. I've always been... Not so ambitious. I was pushed so hard as a kid to be an extrovert, to be out there, to be doing it. And I think my nature is very introverted. I um, see. I have to be creative. That's what I have to do, Kate. I don't have to have fame. I see. So that, you never had that burning need to? At times, I wanted work. I wanted good reviews. I wanted to be an artist, create characters, direct. But I'm also a dabbler. I love design and teaching as much as I love the staging of a play or creating a character. Like. I am as proud of the shows I directed in a 100-seat theater as I am of being on Star Trek all those years. But what I wanted more than 
anything all my life was to have a child, which I finally did while shooting season four of TNG. And what age were you when you did have him? 42. Really? Yep. Sort of miraculously, It was, and so I just sort of felt, this is a gift, and I'm going to give it all I've got. And, like, I was thrilled to have a job in Hawaii after Star Trek where I only had to work a couple of days. What was it? Marker, which they shut down because the star was showing up two, three hours late on set from, he was on drugs. (laughs) Surfing. Yeah, it was actually doing well. It It was right at the time when Voyager was coming out, and that was the gig of the century because I could take him everywhere we filmed, and so I was always with him. But you've never felt the hound at your heels. That's very interesting, and that's very lucky for you, I think. Well, it's what it is. I, it's good, I, You know, It's I, very good. Mm-hmm. It's a, a measured life as opposed to a sort of, you know, uh, breath, breathless life um, of, of ambition, um, which was my direction for, for a very long time and is still, I th- I'm, I'm almost embarrassed to say this, very much alive within me. Um, one would hope that it would subside at this age, but it, it's still there. But for many years, it was, it was uh, tsunamic almost. I mean, I was really driven to, to do that, to but that kind of makes sense. Look, if you come from a big family, it seems to me you have to, there's, there's a fight for just a position at the table. Yeah. I want you to describe, if you can, your mother's world of how to forget if that makes sense, mm-hmm. okay? Mm-hmm. Because you said, I, I thought it was just wonderful in the book. What was that world for her of how to forget if you choose to talk? It was terrifying, and I know it was. Unlike m- most people who I think regard Alzheimer's as a sort of categorical shutting off of the lights, I think it's a crawling through a thicket, and I think it's terrifying. She called me and she said, this was very early on, she said, uh, something is happening. I need you to come. The speech was very halting. Mm. I could tell. I said, what, Mom? What, what is it? She said, well, I think that there have been explosions in my brain. And I think that there are things coming out of the wallpaper. So come. So I did. And then the diagnosis Mm. followed. And she still had enough of wits about her to say to me, post-diagnosis, you can do this for me. Hmm. I know what this is going to be. So I'm going to ask you to help me. Yeah. I mean, my mother painted, and she played the piano, and she read voraciously, and she had eight children, and she shouldn't have had eight children. Right. And she barely two of them. Yeah. And then she was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. Right. But she was born, and her mother died when she was born. My mother was afflicted from the moment of her entrance into the world. I think this, and I want to say this, I think if you're blighted by enough trauma, by enough profound grief, Alzheimer's would be a very natural outcome or byproduct of that because the brain cannot yeah. contain that kind of sadness. I think my mother had was spent her lifetime looking for a mother, and I wrote about that in Born With Teeth. She yep, wanted yep, me to be her mother. Yep, it yep. doesn't work like that. No, it doesn't work like Obviously that. Obviously not. So she painted, and she had children, and she had friends, and she had now, intense friendships and all that. Do you think that she... I couldn't believe it when you said she had 14 miscarriages. Now, do you think that she was... 
I mean, this might be too personal, but do you think that she was hoping that she'd miscarriage or helping it along, or do you think they just were natural? Oh, no, no, no. I mean, I no, think she really just, Catholic. I think she was mm-hmm. constantly uh, under the, if you'll, if you'll pardon the expression, the gun, yes. and the gun was my father, <laughs> yes. uh, who uh, adored her and had uh, clearly had his needs, but um, wow. she used to call me up to the bathroom and say, I need you to bear witness. I wow. baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Of course, the fetus was in the toilet. Wow. And this was not uh, altogether infrequent. So I think that my mother, who was a tiny little thing, 100 oh, wow. pounds, pretty, wow. petite little woman, gammon, a, a, a marvelous sort of erudition and a longing for an intellectual, rich intellectual mm-hmm. life, met my father. She was living in the East. He, they so, met in Chicago, and that was it. Can we talk about this Catholicism then? Because I was raised Catholic, and you were raised Catholic. And I am no longer um, a practicing Catholic. Um, and I remember very clearly in my mind when my mother stopped going to communion. And I asked her, I was about 10, I think, and I said, you know, Mommy, you haven't gone to communion for almost a year. And that's a moral sin. And she said, why don't you just take care of your own soul? That's smart. I like right. your mother. Uh, yeah, she, she was sounds great. like my mother. Mm-hmm. But as I learned later, she had been using a diaphragm. Mm-hmm. And that put her in direct conflict with the church. She believed in birth control and was pro-choice at a time when the church was not. By the time I was in college, we were both feminists. And she opened up to me about her guilt uh, over birth control. But by then, she was super involved with Planned Parenthood in Akron, Ohio, and very pro-choice. On the other hand, the part that I adored growing up of Catholicism were the rituals, the mystery. Oh, my God, I loved it in Latin and the, the incense. That was a way that I could have a blanket of mystery to explain the universe and why I'm here. And I yeah. loved that. Yeah. But as I got older... The church was too paternalistic for me. I mean, women aren't even allowed to be priests. And I began to think, hmm, no, this is, this is, uh, I'm not buying this. How do you feel about this? It's an interesting question, Gates. Something I ask myself all the time and read about all the time and sort of meditate about. I think, still think about Mary. I'll go to the Virgin Mary. That's the one, and she's with most well, women. I don't, she's not an interesting icon to me. No, but, really? But the, the life, mother isn't. I'm, I'm drawn to the metaphysics of Catholicism and to the yeah. the, the dogma, which is most of it dismissible. Um, <laughs> but we're talking, I think, about the mystery of, of Christ. I think we're just talking about love. So for me, the rudimentary truth of Catholicism is exemplified in the life of uh, Jesus Christ, who was just a man. We call him the son of, of God, but he was just a man. But it's the way he lived his life. Well, of course. And, and, and there are from how many other religions is there a figure who is, is equally Every powerful? major religion That's right. has its prophet. That's right. This is ours in Catholicism. I feel it's wonderful for people to have whatever faith they choose, as yeah. long as they don't harm other people, or force religion into our government. But Catholicism is is um... well. If it's if it if it captures you, if it captures your deepest imagination, and I was a little girl, then you're a Catholic for life, which I'm afraid I am. I don't practice. I mean, I'll go to mass if I want to go to mass, um, 
but I think I have a deep sense of the love of the mystery. Yeah. And the undying hope that I could in any way imitate. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the first time I walked into Notre Dame, I just started sobbing. Right. I go to every cathedral of every place and I always light a candle for my grandmother, my mother. It's a ritual and I love that ritual. And there is a power in it, but then there's a power also because architecturally it's- Oh, no question. But I've had more interesting conversations with Catholics, practicing or not, X or not, than I have with atheists, which is interesting to me. I think what's good is the examination. Yes, yes. The examination of how you feel about life and death, how you feel about how how do we all get here? I think what it does is it stirs up the longing for immortality. Or just a longing for some answers. What do we have evidence of in this world? I see my body. I know that I'm here. I know I have hunger. I know and you that. know that you love your son. I know that I love more than my son. This is the key element, but you know that you love your son. And ineffable truth is that you love your son, separating you from the rest of the animals, right? And indicating a possible path towards immortality. Because you want, you believe that that love is eternal, and you believe that it. Will well, the go love on. is, but it doesn't have to do with making me eternal. It has to do. No, with, it's an right. energy. It's right. the loving energy, and I think it. It doesn't. You know, for those who don't have a son, it's whatever. You know, if you're loving your pet, it's it's the the giving, the giving of yourself in in a way that it it's, takes you it's off the of the strangest thing. The love for the son, isn't it? I have two sons and a daughter. What are they up to? <laughs> They're my youngest son, with whom I'm staying here, uh, who just gave me a granddaughter. Oh, Mazel Tov. Congratulations. Yeah, She's divine. Uh, is a painter. He's actually a very good and sort of now well-known painter, Alec Egan. Fantastic. Um, very, very good. But I come from a family of painters. My mother was a painter. Right, right. And it's in the family blood. Uh, my older son, Ian, is in Santa Barbara, and he's studying Jungian depth psychology at... Pacifica, he would like to get, I think, his doctorate. My daughter is in Seattle running uh, meditation centers. But there's something about a mother's love for her son that is utterly transcendent and rather, I don't know, so deeply moving. What is this attachment to the son? Well, see, I don't know that it has to be the son. It's just the child. My, My mother and father loved both of us, I feel, equally. Um, I never felt one was loved more than the other. That's wonderful. They loved us often in different ways. They yeah. put different, and that was from their own bias. But I certainly felt loved by them in a way I hope my son feels from his parents. But as we we were, we were such an insular family, and we built our house together, my mother laid the linoleum in the kitchen floor. I mean, my father, you know, they, we literally did this it. Case? This was in Ohio. Where in Ohio? Well, I was born in Akron, and then we lived in Cuckoo oh, I know Falls. Akron. Mm-hmm. You do? Of course I do. My second husband ran for governor of Ohio. So oh, right, of course. We often okay. went to Akron. Of co- oh, well, mm-hmm. there you go. It was the rubber capital of the world mm-hmm. at one point, mm-hmm. I know. Well, then, then we moved to this little village, Silver Lake, which was in a postal code of Cuyahoga Falls. Uh, by the way, I have the key of the city, so if Cuyahoga I'm... County, I know it well. <laughs> yeah, right. well, there you go. You have the keys to the city. I have the, well, one big, big mother key. It's a huge <laughs> one. I don't know if there's any door big enough that right. it could fit in, but you know, yeah, it was a great place to grow up. It in was... the country or in the city, in the town? Yeah, in the beginning, we were on a very uh, in a duplex on Main Street. 
it was not great. And my brother and I shared a room that was a one bedroom. What did your duplex. father do? He was a hardware salesman. I He'd see. been a pilot, hardware salesman, and then he, he, you know, he stayed with it. And then he was doing hospitals. My mother went in. She started as a bank teller and went into a, um, banking, and she worked her way up and finally became the first assistant vice. She was vice president in Ohio, the first woman ever. And uh, then it was sold to a bank from New York. They came in and fired her Christmas Eve. They told her they had to make cuts and that she was a wife, so she was not head of the household. I mean, it was so sexism, and she yeah. it just destroyed her. And were you aware of that? Oh, God, yeah. How yeah. old would you have been? 22. My brother had bought her a present of a briefcase, which he engraved with her initials to honor her success. And then we were like, do we give it to her? Do we not? Oh, my God. And it was, we gave it to her, but she never used it never recovered yeah it, so when you say she never recovered are you saying that she got depressed about this oh so depressed if she'd been in a city where there were other women bank officers maybe she would have had the courage to say something but what she, did her father do her father worked in a factory they were lithuanian and her mother immigrants. was a housewife that's yeah who didn't speak english no but you see that's what i mean these are the evils of our society practiced Truly. on women just like your mother and we have to protect people better. And we just... Um, well, we're trying, Gates, but we're not really doing very well. No, we aren't. Because it's such a capitalist society that we're living in. I mean, Corporate. the stratum is just... The scope is from the rich to the poor is inexpressibly broad. So I think that we have shaped it to be like that. I'm looking at this pluralistic society in which we live. And are we thriving? No. I mean, if you just look at it, I, I just wonder how it is that we will remain a democracy if we continue on in this oh, way. I know. But it, what it boils down to is, and of course this is true of all of Western Europe. I, I mean, I spent last year in England. I, I am, I'm very aware of, of, of what's going on in the world. We're a people who love money. Yeah, money and power. Money and power. Yeah. But other societies uh, seem to have found a way to to measure themselves accordingly in a way that Americans just haven't. But of course, we're a very big country, well, right? Well, that is a huge reason. It's because we're so big. Like people in France, my friends in France, I have a place in France. Oh, lovely. And they're always like, oh, well, you, I like to Trump. Why are over like, there, Gates? Well, I, I, whenever I can, I want to be, yes. If how I, often do you go and how well, often I, I do have, you Ever since COVID, it was the longest time I hadn't been there. I just love it over there because my life is very simple over there, very simple. simple. And, uh, but I've had to defend being an American, and I keep saying to my French friends, listen, your whole country is the size of Texas. <laughs> like, imagine you had 51 Frances that you had to <laughs> decide who's gonna you know, be the president. It's yes, but size notwithstanding, France is steeped in antiquity. So of course, you know, I see this, I lived in Italy too, and I have lived in, in England and in Ireland, and countries steeped in antiquity an ancient understanding that how you live life is as important as how you make money. Currency comes and currency goes, but a way of life, which the French oh, uh, yeah, really the French understand. Have. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, it's incredible. Money's they, not going to buy you anything except your ticket to France, which is what you need. Well, <laughs> except that I look also, they have, there's a lot of problems there too. You, there's there's growing racism, uh, the, the Arab situation. Terrible. Is, 
Not to mention anti-Semitism. Yeah, which is... I mean, everywhere. You, you, all you do is raise the rug and you, you see these Well, these things. are the concerns of, of, of note. These are the concerns that never seem to change. They're immutable. <laughs> anti-Semitism seems to be unshakable. Yes. Why is it? Why is it thousands of years old? Why is it that we have singled out this extraordinary race for constant, uh, well, we're always trying to annihilate. Well, I think people fear and envy groups that may be stronger, but for sure, the Jewish community takes care of their own I very, very well. think it's a kind of well. deep envy. I think so. The I think there's the a deep envy. The first scribes and the first, uh, first handlers of money, yep. um, they understood that. I mean, this was the House of Medici. They are a people who are absolutely beautifully self-contained. And we can't bear that, I well, guess. Well, yeah. Although I wish there was more freedom for women in the Orthodox community. Any extreme. Any extreme is, is it's troublesome, isn't it? <laughs> troublesome, and yet where would we be without them? I, well, I, I, I agree. I agree. Without I mean, extremes, we wouldn't have religion. We pro wouldn't have progress. We wouldn't have Karl Marx. We wouldn't have anything, do would, you know? We wouldn't have the ancient Greeks. What has gone on for centuries, it's the same thing still is going on. And how can humans really learn, like learn the big lessons? We seem to just have to make those mistakes over and over again as if we're... Um, well, some then seek a different way of living. And I think that, again, is extreme, but it's also very, very effective. Some just move away from the social fabric into a life of solitude or reflection, and then they learn to go deep and to get still. And we don't do that. And now add to that this digital environment in which we live every day. Where we never stop. Never stop, yeah. And there is no real contact. Yeah. I wonder and I worry. But maybe that's my age, too, and I should get with it. But I don't think so. Well, uh, who knows? I mean, it's just a constant examination these days. Um, now, as we are talking about growing old, so... <laughs> You know, in, in my parents' story and in the story about your parents, your story about them that I read, there is this um, thing of becoming the infant again where you have to have somebody else wipe your butt. And, uh, you know, certain states have death with dignity. <laughs> and that's to be reviewed. Um, <laughs> I think that um, I do not want to... Uh, I, I, I'm, I'm not sure I'd have the balls for it. I highly doubt that I'd have the cheek for that. But I think that... Um, I don't want to. I don't want to slide down that slope. But if I have to have someone wipe my butt, I just really want them to wipe it clean. <laughs> well, they will. There's no way I was going to do that with my dad until the very end when I did bathe him. But I did it constantly with my mother, and I didn't do it with my dad because I knew that his pride would be shattered if there were even the remotest recognition that his oldest daughter was doing that. So, you know, you ask somebody else to do yeah, it. But, anyway, he died quickly, so he Yeah, well, see, that's the difference. My father felt that way in the beginning, but then it became clear that it, it was killing my mother to have to be the one, because when you have ALS, you can't just go to the bathroom. It's a long procedure. Gates. And so, I'm so sorry that your dad had to... You go through all these stages, and then I would say that he started to have he let go of the shame, and he started to have a huge sense of humor about it. Did it? Oh, my God. Once I was putting on his PJs, and I put his feet in the leg sleeve, and I leaned him over my shoulder trying to pull up the pants. But they just wouldn't budge, and he was making sounds. So, so I looked down, and I saw I had two legs in the same sleeve of his pants. So when I looked back at him, he was laughing, and I started laughing, and we just sank to the floor laughing. 
it is a beautiful memory, actually. But edify me for a minute about ALS. I thought it was very fast acting. No, fast some people, disease. he lived for six years. We thought it was going to be Isn't that fast. remarkable? It's a whole group of people who have it like that. And it's horrible because you're, you, you can't do anything. And you're just starting to suffocate. Everything shuts down. How much of this do you think is uh, choice when we're very sick? How much do you think a, a strong-minded, strong-willed person can say, I think I'm going to choose to die? I'm going to choose to die. I'm I think gonna, people can choose to die. I'm not going to linger and make a hash of this whole thing. I think my father said he was choosing to die, but I don't think he actually really was. I'd never seen anyone fight so hard. But somebody like your mother, and perhaps my mother too, I know my mother would have chosen a different route. But anyway, that was a great deal of suffering for you in a concentrated period of time. My mother was very strong. She demanded to die in the hospital. She refused to die in the, um, the guest bedroom because she didn't want my son to have those memories. And that came from her father dying in the bedroom in their house that gave her memories of that. That's a way to lift the burden from you. Yeah, exactly. She was that way till the end. Thoughtful, loving, so loving, so end. giving. Yeah. But tell me this, and then we can go on to something else. When she was originally diagnosed with uterine cancer, was it a tumor? Was it a resection? And did they think they got it all? They knew they didn't get it all. And it was, uh, it was first they said it was stage 3B, and then they said eh, it's more like four. But she lived for five seven, more years. Four or five more years, yeah. And that was when my dad, as soon as she came back, because uh, it didn't look like she was going to live that first time. She was really brutal. What age was she? 74. When she died? No, 74 when she got it, 81 when she died. I see. She got it the first time. You know, so, took, you know, yeah. that's a good life. That's Gates. a good life. That's a good life. But I miss her every day. So I want to go back for one minute with you to acting. And you told me 10 minutes ago that you were not fiercely ambitious. I'm ambitious. I love acting, directing, designing. I love being creative. That's what makes me feel alive. And my, my ambition is to be creative, and that feels stronger than my desire to be famous. Yet, of course, recognition for work is a very pleasant thing. How do you balance how one wants the world to perceive you and how to stay true to your heart? How do you balance those two things? It's an inherent balance. I mean, I'm not a liar, and uh, I don't have a persona. I don't lead with a persona. So I lead with myself. and. Uh, they're pretty much in sync. Um. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I think that I have certain talents and certain gifts that um, respond to uh, a certain kind of audience or energy. Um, but it doesn't detract from the innate Kate. You know, I was at the Las Vegas convention, and they always want you to do a panel and stand up and talk. And I very much enjoy that because I think uh, that dynamic is, is kind of where I like to live. 
Conversely, and I have to be very honest about this, I crave, and increasingly, my solitude. So to that end, I have a little yep. house on high stilts in the middle of the water yep. in the Outer Banks of North Carolina, and a lovely little study, and I write, mm. and I have a discipline about writing, and I have a discipline about solitude. And then there's that other part altogether that's sort of dangling that I, I'm not crazy about, and that's the ambitious. Yeah, but see, that sounds great. I, I like that about you, what you just said. I love that encounter that you have on a stage with, you know, in Vegas or wherever it is. I think it's- I like way- it if it's honest, Gates. I don't play them. Right. I'm not there to play them, and they know that. Yeah. I am there for the interplay. I need to learn as much as they want to be, right. whatever See, that's, they want. That's like teaching. That's the way teaching yeah. was for me. I felt it was totally a give and take. I learned a lot from my students, and I, and they learned from me hopefully something. But I mean, the byplay is the beauty of it. The Greeks yeah. understood yeah. this, and I think that you know, being as Captain Janeway, um, they this fan base, as you know very very well, which is why it's sort of a relief to be able to talk to somebody who knows it as well as you do. <laughs> they're very smart. Oh, they are. And they're extremely uh, loyal and fiercely dedicated. And therefore, I just kind of relax and try to go as deep as I can. And they respond to that. Yeah, no, I think that's great. I don't know where I am on that, because I know for years I was so terrified of um, actually being myself because I'd had a stalker. I was stalked. Were you? Yeah, and it was Tell terrifying. And so I thought, being on television, oh my God, he's going to show up again. So I was at conventions. I got very, actually, nervous. But now I really, truly enjoy it, and I, I, I have a lot Has of fun. Has that been taken care of, the stalker? If he hasn't shown up now, I, as an old lady, why would he show up now for me? <laughs> because if he's probably no. Let's, a... let's not give him ideas, Kate. <laughs> no, no, but I, I mean, how long did that go on? It went on for two and a half years. And then How I never heard from him again. Frightening. Never heard from him again. Yeah, it was. It was really frightening. Uh, at any and I, it's like I've never cared much about what kind of car I drive. I've never certain things I don't care about. Other things I really care about. It's the aesthetic of a house is very important to me. The space, yeah. how something yeah, yeah. is, really important. The the aesthetic of the art around me, very important. Um, uh, that's where I feel creative, you know. Or um, and you find that living here. Is satisfying to you. It you de- like LA. It depends. Sometimes I do. Sometimes I don't. Um, but that's true t- with so many places. I know that when I go back to France, or uh, there's an aesthetic in my house even here, although it's a big remodel now. The way the light is and the way nature is, that's what I see. And I see the sunrise in both of my places. I have the sunrise and the sunset. And I feel grounded. Beautiful. Do you find that we're less and less, I'm using the we, um, <laughs> inclined to need, what would the word be? Not ancillary, but sort of um, tangential relationships or, or, or the, just the feeling of society. I feel that I'm withdrawing from that and uh, whatever. Uh, well, I might have withdrawn from that a long time ago. Um, but what's attractive to me is deep friendship. And I can Agreed. count those on Agreed. And that's, one hand. that is what is important. And deep relationships, that's, that's what makes me happy. That's why, I, like, 
a big party scene, you know, once in a while it's fun, but you can't oh, have a real conversation. Awful, awful. It's having a real conversation. I mean, I obviously prefer that. But I had some friends during the pandemic who would bring their computers over to work or hang out, and we'd swim in the pool, uh, eat something, and dance. I like having friends who can take their own space and be fine. You don't have to take care of them every minute, you know. There, um, and people who come and visit me, I say that to them. I say, first day, I'll show you around and show you all the places, but get a car, and then you know, I'll do it a certain amount. But then I also really crave my my time. We'll take walks together. We'll do this, but it doesn't have to be every minute that we're in. But I'm finding now, at this age, you know, I love. I love about seven people very, very, very deeply. And uh, those are the conversations. Those friendships have defined my life, probably as, even as much as my motherhood has defined it, mm. certainly as much as my acting life has defined it. And I'm starting to have to say, prepare myself to say goodbye. And it's agony. Goodbye just, because you're losing them? Or? I'm losing them. That's it. And uh, I'm not very good. That's what I meant when I came in this morning. August has been an awful month. Everyone seems to be hurt. And I'm just not very prepared for this. Mm. But it also, um, it speaks to how much I've loved them. Mm -hmm. And that they own or have really taken my vulnerability do you know yeah but i mean i was shot into the business so young that right. my friends were much older you know right claire levine was almost 20 years older than i was wow of course you don't think when you fall in love with people that you're going to have to say goodbye to them one day and then the day comes with celerity as shakespeare would say and it's breathtaking i read something in the washington post yesterday i mean gorbachev he and i both have the same birthday um, oh, March, really? Yeah, March 2nd. And I always thought that was pretty cool. He said, um, politics and morals should not diverge. Well said. They should marry, but they don't. They don't. Gates. They don't know, know how to get but... married. They only know how to divorce. <sighs> I mean, politics and morals is the, a Hollywood story. And never the two shall, shall merge. Politics is about power. Oh, yes, of course, of course it is. Course it it's is. inherently it's about, about power. power and money, and where do you distribute the money, and how do you do it? I mean, that's what was so brilliant about Borgen, the the the, the series, you know? Loved uh, it. Oh, absolutely genius. Oh, that actress. So good, because... That is a wonderful actress. And Who is she? And then Power and Glory was the second one. That's right. And they were Even both better. excellent, because they really show the truth of These it. These conflicts. You have, where do you compromise? If you know that you have to compromise... How yeah. are you going to do that? Because it's one thing for those who run away and just want to live in the woods, and there's a part of me that would love that, be a hermit. But the reality is, is that that's expecting everyone else to do the work for you, <laughs> to keep the streetlights running. But and you know, whatever. I think in fairness, we have to say that Scandinavia has a different perspective, and they have long held this perspective. It's keener. I think it's smarter. I think it's more elevated. Yeah, the and United they're tiny. States and they're is still tiny a very too. young. Young, right. we're a juvenile nation. I know, but filled with juvenile states and a lot of people who just really want to be rich, very, very rich. And capitalism, of course, is the umbrella. I don't know. I mean, if corporations got taxed the way they should get taxed and um, capital gains got taxed the right way, you wouldn't have such a huge wealth difference. 
The way I wanted my life to be was to have the government subsidy for the arts the way they did in Europe in 1970, when I could go there and you had Peter Brook, Ratovsky, they all were there and everyone had subsidies and you could just bathe and mm. swim in all this new theater, new ideas yeah. were everywhere. It was so exciting. I really miss that time. Back then I felt change was happening. I think compromise, sadly, is an imperative, and I wish it were not so. I know. Which is I why know. in solitude you don't have to deal with compromise. Now, do you think that uh, we could, do you think we could ever make it so that you only have two months to do campaigning for elections, only two months? Uh, but look at England. Still considers itself an empire, and perhaps it is. Look what just happened with Johnson. I mean, yeah. it happens. Everywhere. Everywhere. Yeah. Brexit was just an extraordinary thing. <laughs> Stupid. Do you know? Yeah. The Irish are like gobsmacked. The whole thing is, the world's a bit in a moment, I'd say. But I want to ask you this question. How do you think COVID has affected us as a society? Do you think it's changed the fabric of society? I mean, people are not going into work. Young people are not going right. into the office. All of those little subtle dynamics. Oh, I think it has. I think it's changed quite a few things. We have seen how vulnerable we are, how quickly life can change upside down. We've had to deal with solitude in a way that, that perhaps many people hadn't. And we've lost friends. And for, I think, I cannot imagine how hard it was for parents and students in elementary school in particular to zoom to school to just zoom to school how can you possibly do that socialization is so important so i feel we are going to see these effects in a generation that's you know coming up coming up i think we are i live in manhattan you know and i've been in new york since i was a 17 year old girl and those were the 70s when it was dirty and fabulous yeah and I feel like a, a gray veil has yeah, dropped over that I think great so city. Too. And I don't know what's going to happen to the very structure of, of Manhattan. What are we going to do with all those skyscrapers? What are we going to do? I know. I know. I mean, has it injected us with a certain, infused us with a certain indifference? Um, we can go in, we can work at home, we can Zoom, we can order in our food. I think we are definitely going through a major shift where it's almost like we're shedding a skin, but we don't know what the new skin's going to look like. Also, you know what I felt strongly while I was in England last year, especially? Boy, England loves its actors. It just does. It's part of the, of the culture. It's just part of the culture that they all revere and they want. And there seems to be a, a great respect for it, love for it. Here, I just think there's always the terrible element of schadenfreude, you know? Yeah, but I, you know, I, I have a, maybe a bug up my butt about this, but I really feel you have to look at the size. I'm sorry, England is just this little tiny place. It is. And you can go and be in the, the smallest town there and you still can get to London in the same day. You can't do that. You can't be out in, uh, you know, uh, Washington State at, uh, um, you know, a theater there that's no. a fabulous theater doing fabulous work and then suddenly you need to come back to New York. I think it's that's why we in particular need government subsidy. Yeah, I agree. I, I mean, you know, so these choices don't have to be so extreme. Yeah, so I, I, having been artistic director here and, and built that Atwater Village Theater, I, I really feel I got to know some of the small theaters, really small theaters around here. 
Yeah. And some of the work was brilliant. Yeah. I want to tell you, they, they, there was, they were doing new work. It was very, very um, edgy and beautifully acted and beautifully directed. But, you know, they were in 100-seat houses and they could, you know, it was hard. And that's yeah. because of the logistics. It's not self-sustaining. Had they had, they had some subsidy, they mm. would have been able then to move that and take it to another theater or go to New York. And I, uh, you know, one of the best productions I directed, I, I knew it was good. It was really a strong production. And it would have gone in New York. It would have probably run for a long time. And just here... I couldn't afford the projectors. Well, here's your politics and ethics gates. I mean, the NEA. We, yeah. The arts have never really been subsidized in this country. No, never. How are we going to get teachers to teach? How are we going to draw them back? We have the two lowest paying jobs, caretakers and teachers. They just are Absolutely not, appalling, isn't it's, it? It's like, how are we expecting this country to pull themselves forward if we don't put the money where it actually is needed? I we, don't know. I don't know. I, I again, it's it's the terrible. I mean, do you know how many people left the profession of medicine because of the way they were treated in COVID? I mean, just like the hours they were expected to have, and you know, people say, "I just yeah. can't do it anymore." Yeah, yeah, no. I know, but it's just a reflection of everything we've been talking yeah. about regarding money. So you had a side note. You talked about courage and honor versus devotion, because your mother was devoted to the abbess and God. And it seems to me devotion is loyalty. Uh, devotion is caring. And I would have thought your mother and father were very loyal to the family. They were loyal. Yes, they were certainly loyal to one another. It takes courage to be to be uh, loyal. Because you really have to go, am I going to go the distance in this situation? It does. It takes a kind of moral courage yeah. to be to be loyal. Yeah, it does. That's yeah. right. Uh, I thought you had separated them, and that's why that's what I was questioning. Devotion is another. Uh, Are you it, thinking the kind of sort of senseless? I'm just going to do take care of this person no matter what. Because I think you know, I watched those nuns. Uh, my mother got, got was very involved with the Trappistine nuns, and uh, I watched them all my life. Did she get the recipes for the jam or not? Yeah, and the caramels. That's the most important okay. thing. <laughs> that's a devotion to uh, a deity. That's the word, and the only really applicable word here is devotion because it's ineffable. But I like what you said because I think loyalty is the better and more human word. Mm -hmm. And loyalty is a combination of courage, honesty, and dignity. Yeah. What you do is I take a look at you, Gates, and let's just say we're 20, and I decide that I want to have a profound friendship with you. From that moment on, I am declaring my loyalty hmm. to you. And it is a discipline. It is a practice. It is never shirked. It must be sustained, and it must be nurtured. Right. Discipline is my big thing in life. I mean, if you want to know what I'm really passionate about, it's people with discipline. Right. Because discipline, from discipline, emanates all the good stuff. Right. If you're disciplined, you're going to find out. Yeah. If you're disciplined, you're going to finish the book. If you're disciplined, you're going to read all of Proust. If you're disciplined, you're going to have that friendship for 60 years. Do you know? Yeah. I love discipline. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. 
Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer. Who are, who are your favorite authors? I say Proust because I love Marcel amazing. Proust. I mean, there's only one Ernest Hemingway for a reason. And this is a man absolutely disciplined who never went to college, who would rewrite one sentence for a week. Yeah. Do you know? Yeah. Lovely. Spartan. I also love Faulkner. I know he's difficult for a lot of people. No, I love him But too. I have someone new, and I'm announcing her on your podcast. She's not new in the world of literature, but she would be new to most of, I think, most people. Rachel Cusk. Oh, absolutely. Yes. Fabulous. I've now read all of <laughs> oh, Rachel Cusk. Oh, that's great. I haven't read all. No. She's controversial. Fabulous. Yeah. She's very... Talk about bone honesty. Yeah. She has flipped her marriage. Her kids, I think, have... I mean, the whole thing. She has redefined. No, she's, she, she's that's great. literary honesty. Yeah. yeah that's and great. how she does it, I don't know. But I just adore her. What do you think of uh, Ferrante? I like Eleanor Ferrante. I think that uh, uh, my brilliant friend, uh, th that whole trilogy is marvelous. Her other novels, I think, are a l little different. I love, I love the, fact the Lost that she's... Daughter. I read it years ago before I saw the film. I didn't like the film. I didn't think the film did did justice to the book. I think the book there was a there is a point, a case in point of the miscasting of a brilliant actress, yeah, Olivia yeah, Coleman. Yeah, but she wasn't right for that part. No, I it it. Uh, it was odd casting, totally, throughout the whole thing, I thought. But I remember when I read that book, because it was whenever it had just come out or something in the translation. Yeah. And I was, was I in France? I was, I was reading it. And when that moment, when she takes the doll out of her purse, mm. I just threw the book across the room. It was so upsetting to me. Yeah. The thought of what that would do to a child. And, and that was... Right. Amazing, and when I have that kind of reaction, I know something's well, good. Well, something's good. There you went because... to Ferrante after Cusk because the two of them have have had the absolute courage to discuss what it is to be a bad mother, yeah, or to be a yeah. mother who is constantly in conflict yeah. with her greater Absolutely. impulse, which is to be a writer. Yeah, and they've both had to endure this, and are magnificent writers. But I think the price is unbearably high. Look at the price your mother paid. Motherhood is something. I, I'm something. I'm talking like. Motherhood, something I. Uh, okay. Uh, <laughs> this is what motherhood does. Motherhood <laughs> produces you to. <laughs> uh, motherhood is something else. It's it's a really huge part of my life, I guess, and I think of it in many ways. But um, there are a lot of people who who do not want to be mothers, nor should they be, and there are other people who do want to be, and that's why the right to choose is really important for me because well, the right I, to choose is important have, just because I it have, is I, human yes and human. i have gone and seen in uh, places in la where there's all these pregnant 15 year olds and because they want someone to love them and so they think they're going to have their baby and the baby's going to love them they have no clue about what it's really like because they're still yeah. children themselves and I'm like, no, 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 no. Not to mention the heinous deeds that men are forever practicing on women, like incest and rape. We're taking off the table the fundamental law of humanity. I'm a woman. Yeah. I have jurisdiction over my, over my own, own body. body. I love the woman who was driving in the carpool lane who was pregnant. You must have heard of this. Oh, I know. And the cop pulls her over and says, you're one person in the car. She says, no, I'm two. I'm pregnant. So that's two. If you're going to count a fetus as a child, then that, that counts. Then I'm allowed to drive 
you know, it's it's like in the car. Make up your name. <laughs> yeah, it's like make up your mind. Is it a is it a, an individual or is it not? It's crazy. You know, with all respect to the your male listeners, um, the majority of whom I'm sure are incredibly smart, um, we do seem to always have this terrible. What's the word, Gates? Not patriarchal, patrimony. What is the word I'm looking for? I've always felt, and certainly in Hollywood, I've always felt the white boys' club must remain sacrosanct unto itself because the fear is very, very, very real. Um, I think that women are very powerful. They are, anyone who can give birth. But this whole thing of sex, I just, isn't it amazing? Yeah, well, it All is. All my life, I've observed it. I've lived it. I've experienced it. I've stood back. I've been in. I've been out. I've been up. I've been down. I mean, sex. It's the whole thing. Mm. Sex is the trigger. We're here to copulate. We're mm -hmm. here to reproduce, right? Well, except if everything reproduced, we, we would have been overpopulated long oh, ago. And that's why, even genetically speaking, I mean, homosexuality is actually scientifically very good for uh, the world actually Indeed. and why people don't do the research on this is beyond me because maybe nature had a good plan and it's genetic well it goes back to religion ah oh, separation of church and state oh my lord don't get me started um on the other hand i feel everyone should have the right to choose their religion but let's tax these religious organizations please let's let's start taxing them because this is just I another know, way Gates. of. I see a politician. Yeah, no, virginity. no, not not me. No, I would be, uh, I would be thrown out of the, of the chambers, <laughs> <laughs> just like I was thrown out of Next Generation after my first season. You were? Yeah. I yeah. See, I don't know all these. Stories. Oh yeah, no, I was. Why were you thrown out? Well, I mean, you know, um, it's all hearsay at this point. But I really did not get along with one of the writers, and I felt he, it was so sexist. A lot of the stuff he was writing, and I complained to him, and I would talk like I was at the faculty meeting at uh, the university or something. Like I would speak my mind, and I really, I really rubbed him the wrong way, and I didn't like the way he was writing about um, several things. And I spoke my mind regarding your character. Yeah, not only just my character, <laughs> but anyway. It turns out there's a way to suggest things in Hollywood. And I was clueless about that. I just felt the writers didn't understand that single parent career women like men are able to have deep conversations with their sons. And it wasn't always, uh-oh, Wesley got in trouble again today. I didn't know the but politics. But then they couldn't fly without you, could they? Is that what happened? Well, Patrick called me and asked me back. Yeah, it wasn't working so well. And the fans did a big thing too, which was great. Uh, I mean, I that was the first time I understood. How great, well, wonderful. Yeah, I mean, I couldn't believe it. Uh, but then when I came back, it was a different character too. So it took years. It was. Yeah, it was. And I, I don't think my... at the had I known that, I doubt I would have, you know, come back on board. But then they finally got back to some things of what the character was. But by that time, they knew they were going to have Voyager, so they didn't want to have my character who could have taken over command much more often. They didn't want that sort of thing because I think they started to go, let's save it. But I was thrilled they were going to have a female captain. What did you think of that when what? you heard that Voyager was going to have a female captain? I thought, captain? fantastic. Oh my God. I mean, of course. Yeah. You know, absolutely. I, I felt that it was like the way a lot of the writers would write about uh, the relationship of a mother and a son. They did it like 
Donna Reed more instead of, but they but they always felt that the the male characters had to have these heart to hearts with young men and you know be paternal. But I think probably it's because they were at work all the time and they were not being able to do that with their kids, so they wanted to do it in the in the writing. But we didn't have any women who were actually writing what it really was like to have these deep philosophical conversations with your kids. Which and you are, know, we only had one female writer on. Jerry Taylor was the only yeah, exec. Yeah. Well, Jerry Taylor also wrote what has become a classic cult thing now. What? It's the Beverly Crusher sex episode. <laughs> oh, it was like, uh, I mean. Who did you make love to? Was it Patrick Stewart? Uh, it was a ghost. It was not Jamie anything was always... to do with Star Trek. It was Jerry had always wanted to have some sort of romantic kind of episode for me. It was definitely not a scientific Star Trek, okay? And when I saw this script, all of the generations of my character's family were all in love with a lamp, okay? I mean, oh, seriously. Come no, on. no, seriously. And when I saw it, I thought, this is seventh season. And I thought, are you kidding me? You're telling me. This woman who is so smart has come from a family where they've all been having sex with a lamp ghost. And, <laughs> and I mean, it really Hence was, it was tough. enlightenment. It was, it was not to be believed. I mean, I really had to go deep on oh, this Oh, that's one. too much. Well, and people said, this isn't Star Trek. This is not. Didn't you go to okay. Jerry right away and say, what are you doing? I, it was, it was too late. I did we didn't have a table read. It mm. was like there. Now I am so happy I did this episode because it has become a cult with younger people and everyone laughs at it. And they give they they were selling these little lamps and stuff. I mean, funny. it's it's funny. You have to just laugh, okay? Oh, we had a few of those outrageous things. I, I but mean, our last question is right. to you, Gates McFadden. Uh oh, no. Okay. Didn't Crusher have a relationship with Picard? Well, that's where I was hired as his love interest. But I think... Patrick felt that Picard's having just one love interest was not sexy enough for a male hero. Male heroes have lots of babes. So uh, I lost that part of my character without ever being told, uh, which really was different. And then it was sort of like it had never happened in some of the movies. Whatever, that's the Hollywood system. I still haven't learned what the Hollywood system is. So. No, I think Hollywood doesn't know what the Hollywood <laughs> but maybe is. But I can give you this answer. This was completely and utterly enjoyable. It case. really, thank you so much for and doing this. And now we really must have that martini. We must. Okay. okay. All right. <laughs> and talk about that lamp. Long right. may it shine. <laughs> right. Thank you, Gabe. Bye. It's no surprise Kate Mulgrew was chosen to play the first female captain on a Star Trek series. Intellectual curiosity is a prerequisite for those pips, and she has that in spades. Our discussion about Catholicism is relevant to me on many levels. I was brought up to believe Mary, the mother of Jesus, was holy because she, like her son, was all about love. I can't tell you how many villages in France and Italy are devoted to the mother of Jesus. In my village, they believe she appeared twice in the vineyards and instructed them to build a church in her honor. So they did. It's become my favorite place to meditate when I'm there. I feel the energy the villagers who have prayed for her over hundreds of years, and it moves me. Instead of praying directly to Jesus, they pray to Mary, asking her to intercede on their behalf and to carry their prayers to her son. I find that fascinating. And of course, I do love it when mothers are appreciated. <laughs>